background, I lead the Northeast Zone ENO and Cyber team for Marsha McLennan. I've been a part of the industry for about 10 years, the last six with Marsh. Um, and I've also had the privilege of leading the DNI committee for Rise Insurance Professionals. So it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, a few housekeeping things before we get started. So as always, quick reminder to our listeners, the views and opinions shared today during the Off the Record podcast are those of the authors. They do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of our employers. Any content provider by our authors or bloggers are aware of their own opinion, and it's not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, anyone, or anything. So with that, um, I'd like to introduce our speaker. Joining me today is Rochelle Rosado, uh, Marsh's Global Talent, Learning, and Inclusion Leader for the U.S. and Canada. A bit about Rochelle, she has had over 15 years of organizational development, global engagement, talent management, and diversity and inclusion leadership experience. Her leadership involves designing and activating change management processes, implementing talent management strategies, designing and implementing leadership and professional development programs, and follow through cultural assessments, global engagement, culture, and DNI strategy and talent branding. As a diversity and inclusion leader, she has had great success establishing and maintaining global, professional, and employee networks and diversity councils, rolling out company-wide unconscious bias training, building executive scorecards to drive results, where the impact of efforts can be measured all while leveraging strong internal and external relationships and partnerships. Wow, Rochelle, as I said to you before, that was an excellent bio. Like, what don't you do? Did I miss anything? I'm sitting here laughing, thinking, what a tall order once you hear all that back. I am a mother of two beautiful boys and, and a wife. Does that count? Yes, that counts. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, so just for our listeners, our topic today, and this will be a pretty free-flowing dialogue between myself and Rochelle, it's really about talking through how organizations put their money where their mouth is. And I mean that in the sense that there have been so many articles and podcasts and trainings and coachings about fostering DNI within the workplace, really focused on employer and employee relationships, um, especially after the events of 2020. However, I can't help but recognize that I don't necessarily see the same emphasis put on business relationships as in client relationships or suppliers or vendors that we hire to foster our business growth. So I wanted to bring in Rochelle today just to talk a little bit about this. And Rochelle, I'd really like to know your opinion. And let's just start with clients, especially because a lot of us are taught that the client is always right and we're, we're traditionally in client service businesses. So in your experience, is client uh, DNI issues an issue? Do employees raise it? Do we have concerns around what some of our clients say or how they act towards our employees? It's a very fair and very real question. And the answer is yes. And before I go to give you more of a definition behind that yes, I would also say that more often than not, the reason why it doesn't come to the surface out in the open is that a lot of these issues get dealt with behind the scenes. And when I say quote unquote behind the scenes, it's not that we all don't hear of them often, it's that if they do arise, however they're dealt with, 
you know, either behind closed doors and with all the subject matter experts and professionals, you do go through a process and then it's handled and it, it's never really discussed openly and outwardly. I think now more so than ever before, our organizations and especially Fortune 500 organizations are surfacing and opening and sharing what it means to really manage through what I like to call microaggressions with clients. And just for the sake of, I might be highlighting microaggressions, but I just wanted to define it so that we're all operating with that, that same understanding that a microaggression is really a term used for brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental um, indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or even just negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. And the reason why I'm defining it is, yes, this, this does come up with clients, you know, in, with relationships, if you really unpack it, these are our relationships and we're dealing with our greatest asset, which is our talent. And so anyone on the leadership pipeline, wherever you fall in the leadership pipeline, whether you're, you know, an individual contributor, you're leading others, you're leading teams, in some cases you're leading networks, both internally and externally, you have relationships that you're building upon. And in some cases, biases, whether unconscious or conscious, um, they tend to surface in how decisions are ultimately made and reliance upon those established relationships. So for example, we, we at Marsh, we're, you know, we're a business that we put a lot of stock in the relationships that we have over time with our clients. And so if, for example, clients are dictating, let's say, and I'll give a recent example, which is something that, that we've just dealt with, where the client is dictating how we assemble a project management team and how we put together that team, how that team should look and feel. And when, when they discuss underrepresented minority groups, whether it's gender, racial, or ethnic diversity on that team, and they come in with a very specific request, if we feel that that is not the best team in terms of diverse background and experiences to give the client top of the line service, then we absolutely, we, we do advocate, we do interject, we do negotiate. And I think therein lies the issue that your, your opening remark was, you know, we just don't hear about it that often. You know, why don't we hear about how it's being managed? And it's now more than ever before, um, do we in leadership and management feel every right to have that courageous conversation and further negotiate behind the legitimacy of why we might counteract or, or counterbalance what they're proposing because we feel strongly that we have the right talent, a balanced, diverse slate of talent that would best service them. And so these are issues that come up often and they're, they're ones that, again, built on relationships. You have to really challenge the status quo and make sure that you have the right leaders involved in those final negotiations and conversations. So, you know, for us, in some instances, goes all the way up the chain to the CEO that takes an active role to really, in some cases, mitigate, but really try to further understand why, you know, why the client is asking for certain things under their terms that might not match our level of service and how we'd like to engage. You said a lot, which touches on many of the questions that I've written down. So let's un unpack this a little bit. Um, from an from a DNI perspective, on average, would you be able to say 
how many times you receive complaints or issues around employer-employee relations versus client issues? Such a good question. And of course, now I, I can't share confidential information. Okay. Say, um, percentage-wise, for, for a long period of time, I would say that internal complaints from colleagues, from our employees, would be of a greater percentage than the issues that came about to the surface to be managed and dealt with from our clients. And I would say even in this past year alone, that's beginning to flip, if that makes sense. Now, I don't know if that's a direct result of all of the managing your bias training, the unconscious bias, the allyship, the inclusive leadership. I know we've, we've um, done a deep dive and added some rigor to those efforts, but I would say that ever more, more now than ever before, are our leadership teams feeling empowered and, and the language that we've built into our RFP toolkit. Mm -hmm. Some of the very specific commitments that we make to our diversity and inclusion um, overall strategy and best practices. So I would say the answer to your question is more so are, are cases coming forward from client you know, from the client side than, than ever before that are actually being handled and managed. And there are, you know, there's a multitude of, of the framework and the processes behind how we, how we mitigate and how we really work this through to be very thoughtful. So whether they're going through employee relations, having the, every, everyone in the leadership chain that's um, responsible for that client relationship all the way up the top to the CEO. And that's really interesting insight to know that it's, it's kind of flipped in terms of the amounts of issues that are arising. It tells me two things. You're right about education and awareness, but I like to think that maybe our own employees are improving in the way we treat others or the, the diversity in our, our own organization is growing to eliminate some of these issues as well. That's the hope. I mean, we'd like to see the data trend analysis. We'd like to start to compare, but it's a very insightful question because it does demonstrate what's actually happening internally, where we're pushing back, where we're willing to, you know, take a negotiation to a whole different level clients versus just be in the service of at any cost. And I think that's the critical differentiator is, of course, customer service is our number one you know, key principle and also operating with our shared character. And so when you look at our shared character, when you look at inquisitive, when you look at the human component, just trying to get really curious, but really leverage the human character that we hold dear, holding that at such a high level so that the service that we're providing truly does match how we, how we present ourselves and our commitments internally, at least through the DNI lens. Fair enough. Um, before we get too off track, I have so many more questions on clients, but what about suppliers? Those are partnerships that we can control. Those are probably annual contracts that we have with most of our vendors. Do we do a good job diversifying our supplier base? That's another great question. I mean, that, that's a big one that you'll now see as a best practice for any, any Fortune 100 organization is making supplier diversity commitment. And in 20, 2020, we made a very bold addendum where we are committed to 50% of our vendor relationships in the US to be diverse. And what we mean by that is any female owned businesses and or racial and ethnically diverse owned businesses. So if we're committing to 50% and then doing an audit 
on a quarterly basis and then reporting out. So we don't have a public, um, uh, a DNI public report. Hopefully we're working our way towards getting to that goal probably by 2022. But at the very least, we could say that with our commitments to supplier diversity being 50% diverse, which is more than we've ever been able to commit to. It's a pretty bold or at least a loud statement in now evaluating vendor relationships and our contracts and then having the pivot which is why it's, it's such a good question because we should be doing that. Mm-hmm. And at the very least with procurement, just going through, in some cases, um, contracts that have been set in stone. So you have those multi-year contracts where you can't negotiate different terms versus all of our new vendors we can hold to our 50% commitment of diverse. Perfect. And how does that stack up against the industry? Like, are we doing better? Are we in line? Are we in line with insurance, but behind in others? That's, that's probably a fair way to put it. Um, if we're having an honest conversation, we will be leading the charge. And our aspirational goal is to do exactly that. It's to be bold and truly be um, a trailblazer within our industry. But when you look at some other organizations, they've gone as far as to hold to a 60 to 70% commitment of vendor relationships being diverse. When you read between the lines, you see how difficult that is in terms of these multi-year contracts and how you negotiate the terms of what's already standing. And in some some cases, vendors being clients, you walk a very fine line. So it does get tricky, but in terms of putting a line in the sand and then pivoting and posturing to say, going forward, we will be intentional with every single new vendor and then putting them through our procurement process to set up a new vendor. There's a lot of language in our contracts, also in our RFP toolkit that speaks to the supplier diversity um, commitments. And it does does add time to the process. So as an organization, just to answer your question, to, to really pivot and make that commitment, you have to be willing to add some time to the process. And there are a lot of steps in just educating our leaders that are looking to add on new vendors. What you're putting in is your checks and balances to to govern you know, your governance model overall to really ensure that there's efficiency, but that it's effective. Um, probably I would, I would be close to saying that even takes a year to get set up so that it's efficient. Fair enough. So strategies and protocols first, then we enact those and at least get to the 50% and then we kind of reevaluate the contracts as they come up for renewal to get to it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a best in class um, protocol that I would say we'd be leading the charge as far as that goes within the industry based on what we know. Okay, good stuff. And I want to go back to some of the comments that you made about client preferences and microaggressions specifically, because I think a lot of the listeners on this call, we have a lot of young professionals within the RISE Insurance Professionals DNI Committee and other committees that are probably listening in and thinking, okay, what is the real difference between a microaggression and a client preference? How can I spot it? Because a lot of times we're, we get told that clients prefer someone on the deal. Um, and I think it also depends on why they prefer that candidate on the deal. But I'd like to see you know, your response on this. What's the real difference between a client preference and a microaggression? Mm-hmm. What's the appropriate client preference? And that's a really fair question because more often than not, when we say a microaggression, that really is better known as an indirect, subtle or unintentional discrimination against you know, 
members of a marginalized group. And the problem with microaggressions, and which is why we were actually launching in Q2 doing a deep dive training of microaggressions that can happen with peers, with leaders, as well as with clients and how to best handle them. The challenge is because of the subtlety and because sometimes it's sort of an under the, you sweep the common under the carpet or because you rely so heavily on a pre-existing relationship that it could be seen that it's almost favoritism or tokenism and you sort of lean into that relationship and, and that notion of tokenism. And when you're actually trying to please a client and trying to hold up a reputation that has been longstanding, it's very difficult to tease out the difference between the two. But I would say, you know, without a doubt, when there is an actual statement or an action or even an incident, something that has occurred that even though it's indirect or subtle, maybe unintentional, so truly unconscious bias, but it's pitted against a marginalized colleague um, or group of racial or ethnic minority group, you really have to toe the line. And what we would say and what we've been saying in all of our trainings is, you know, it, it goes back to that. If you see something, say something. If something does feel right and you feel pitted against and or overlooked to be considered, and in this case, to your example, like to be considered to be a part of a project team, or if a client is specifically requesting um, a very specific background that is not what you identify with, this is, this is cause for concern. And this is where we've been training up managers across the board, anywhere you fall in the leadership pipeline to really challenge the status quo and call that out. And just in some cases, it's seeking to understand. It's asking the right questions and getting curious about, well, why? And wanting to further understand it. So I think it's a great question because there is that fine line, but this is how the work starts. If we're truly building a culture of inclusion, then that starts at every step of the way. That's the relationship with the client. And that's for the colleagues to be very clear on the overall objectives of either why they were or weren't chosen. I've, I often call it like closing the feedback loop, but really mm -hmm. input, really understanding like what are the must-haves? What do we absolutely have to have either in assembling a project team or selecting colleagues to participate either on a client team, whatever the case, what are the must-haves in terms of background skills and capabilities? And be very clear about what are the nice-to-haves. It's the same thing that we do with job descriptions. So it's just defining those lines so that those microaggressions, those subtle, you know, under the rug that they're often swept, start to raise to the surface. And we can really empower colleagues to call them out, but also for leaders to start to identify them and know how to manage through. It's, it's not always a comfortable conversation. So that, to your point of even asking, or I'm assuming why you're asking, they, they shy away. Yes, for sure. I think it's, I think we see a variety of different actions, um, or I should say reactions. And I'd like to question you on some of that. Before we do that though, I think I'd like to give you three scenarios. And maybe you can tell me if it's a client preference, if it's a microaggression, or if it's something else, but we should call it out. So. If you're in an RFP situation or you're going to be selected, the client team is trying to select the best person for the RFP, and they say, well, we need a diverse candidate to respond to this RFP because our client is extremely diverse. 
So Pyle, can you respond to the RFP? Um, knowing that other people have bandwidth, you don't have bandwidth, but this is what's being communicated from the client team. What would you say about that scenario? Is that just you know, a, a client preference that is appropriate or is it something that could potentially be not appropriate? That's a tough one. That was a really good one though. Um, <laughs> that's probably the, the first one, the client preference. But I guess the one piece that you didn't say is going back to my earlier point of, is there a pre-existing relationship? So in that instance, does Pyle have that pre-existing relationship? So they already know what they're going to get. No. Okay. Yeah. But then, then I would actually, do I get to amend? That would be yeah, sure. That could be considered a microaggression. Okay. How about this one? And this is a little bit more black and white, but I know this happens not only to diverse colleagues, but for colleagues that aren't diverse too. Um, we know you're experienced, but we're looking for someone with a bit more gray hair to do the pitch. That's, that's, that, that one is squarely within a micro. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but it does come up. We, um, am I allowed to give one too? Yes. It just came up last week. Um, she's a very difficult client. She's very demanding and she expects that you're, you're going to balance her out with a very can-do attitude. And so if you're going to be a CE assigned to her, you have to be willing to travel with her, wine and dine with her, and really just be very much a yes person. And so, you know, and really, really this should be a female. And so literally that, that was put out and I think, again, that fits squarely in the microaggression category. And th those are going to be those tough conversations. This is where I think our team, not just our team, but teams in general, have a tough time really identifying what the microaggression is because we're such a, we're such a yes company, right? We want the business. We want to make sure we do best by the client. We know all clients are different. We want to cater to their needs. Some of the people in this industry have been doing this for 20 years and have just, just, I guess, addressed or placated some of these microaggressions for a long time where they can't necessarily decipher the difference. So if we have those individuals training our new colleagues, I feel like that's, that's going to be very hard for this new generation of insurance professionals to really decipher the difference and speak up. Yep. All the reason why, I mean, a lot of this, I think you're spot on because a lot of this is peeling back the layers of the onion and causing everyone to pause and really be thoughtful about how they're approaching because never would you question a client, but that's what, that's in fact what we're suggesting is mm -hmm. understand this when you're asking for the more gray hair, or when you're saying she has to have, you know, she has to be a yes, she has to be a yes person. Help me understand that. Let's unpack that. Let's pause right there. Explain more of what you mean by that. You really have to hold them and just get it, you know, using the inquisitive character that we hold dear at Marsh of our four shared characters, get inquisitive, stay curious, but really hold them to task to further understand, well, well let's differentiate between what is a must have in terms of skill and capability, and then a nice to have, because this is what's always worked well. And then to further challenge the status quo, go a later, layer deeper and say, but I actually have someone else in mind and here's why. 
Just stay with me here for a minute. Let me walk you through that based on what I've heard, you're looking to accomplish your overall goals. This is why I think, you know, George would be a better fit. And so you, you have to go those, you have to inquire and get curious mm-hmm. right questions, which by the way, does signal your posturing, that you're, you're posturing and you're starting to pivot. And then you're going to go and make another recommendation and just the courage to be able to do that. I think you're right. I think it's, it's a lot of unfolding. Um, in some cases, what some, some of our leaders have been so used to and so comfortable with. So what you just described is kind of a best-in-class way to have a conversation with a client, correct? So if we're, in, if we're in that tough corner where our client is asking us and we're uncomfortable saying no, how do you push back with the right questions to get them thinking differently? Do we have like a, a script for this? Like, or do I just call you every single time I'm in a tough position <laughs> to walk me through the conversation? It's really, I mean, and that's, thank you for asking the tough questions, uh, it, really, because this is the tough, this is the tough stuff. Um, we don't have a script. We probably should think of putting one together. This is the microaggressions, the training, and how to deal, deal with these d- difficult conversations, which is happening right now in two of our zones and rolling out through July. Um, we will have toolkits put together. The tough thing about why it's not black and white is it's situational. So more often than not, like any skill, these are behavioral competencies as a leader, just the ability to be agile and to use the data, to use the relationship to work to your advantage. So you might dig deep in other areas based on what you know to be true in the relationship and use that to work for you and say, here's what I'm sensing. I'm sensing a microaggression and here's why. And based on our relationship, you know, we go, I'm going to hold you to this one and I'm going to make a recommendation based on what I think would best service you. And you might lean into that relationship versus another scenario. And this is why I'm saying it's situational where situationally assess the scenario and understand all of the key components. You might not have had a pre-existing relationship that you can build upon and really challenge. And in those scenarios, yes, there are some quick hits and some tips that we're hopefully looking to arm everyone with, but you also need the support of your leader. If you are going to be courageous and speak out, you need to know that your leader has your back and so on and so forth. It goes all the way up the leadership chain. So let's talk about that a little bit. So if I'm in a situation and I either have been I've been the victim of a microaggression or my client is asking me things that I'm uncomfortable with and have to have a tough conversation. And I go to my leader. Um, is that the next, I guess, right step? Do I just go to my manager and say, Hey, I've been in this situation or is my next call really HR? And if my leader just says, why don't we assign someone that's less offend, offended by those types of comments, or this person would actually be a really good fit and doesn't even look at it as an, an issue, what do I do? That, yeah, that is a big red flashing sign. <laughs> That's when you, da- you, of course you go to HR and you always go to HR confidentially. And you can say, I'm expressing a concern. This is what I'm experiencing. I haven't even gone to my manager yet, but because of the, the immediate response from the client, I wanted to raise this with you first. Either way, when you have HR, you know that it's confidential, but you should be, you should be raising it. In some cases, it will, you know, they'll, they'll ask you to pull in your manager. So 
it depends on the, the chronological order, but in some cases they will ask for you to pull in your manager and make them aware. And then, and then you'll have to work it through. I think without having the support of HR and especially, especially in the other scenario where the manager is telling you, well, we're gonna pull you from this account and, and here's how we'll solution, that therein lies the issue with the accountability and how we're actually holding ourselves accountable, having the right conversations that's what stalls progress over time. So, you know, colleagues feeling fully um, supported, mm-hmm. supported from the top down and supported for all the right, right reasons is where we're going to move the fastest in terms of making, making change happen. I agree. Um, so it leads me to my next question, which is, have we ever walked away from business? We've had, we've had a few instances where in the similar example that I had given earlier, um, that actually had to go all the way to the top and and involve our CEO. Um, And we've had to negotiate back and forth, but we were willing to walk away. We did walk away from the business. So this is where I think you have the ultimate ultimate challenge of our reputation, our pre-existing relationships, being a brand ambassador, and at the very same time, being willing to draw that line in the sand of our commitments and, and the readiness to walk away. And so if they, you know, we have that compromise and we have our internal ethics training of the greater good, um, arming our colleagues with the awareness to spot it, to know it, and then to do something about it so, so that it goes all the way to the top and we're willing to walk away from business because it rubs against our ethical and moral standards is a huge change. You know, in the industry, it's a huge, it's a huge step forward. Um, and, and it usually won't get to that. It, it's, 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 it's commonplace for us to be able to negotiate and work our way through, but we aren't afraid to walk away if it's Good. right, which is, yeah, which is encouraging and eye-opening in, in the sense of really feeling the turn and the pivot happen in our That's industry. ultimate support. That's the yes. ultimate support for the colleague. Exactly. Um, so I have an adjacent issue that I'd like to just throw in here before we just talk about the future state of, of our industry. Um, political views. Like I know that they have been, I see you smile. So you're, <laughs> I know that, that you think I'm testing you with these questions, but I am actually very curious because we're always taught never to talk about politics in the workplace. Politics have never been as polarizing as they are today. And I think we, just with the events of 2020, have seen clients that feel free to talk through where they are on certain issues, where, how they feel about certain groups, to kind of start conversations as if they're talking about the weather. And you never know, right, what side someone is on. And so usually we don't talk about it, but when, when we do have a client, loves to engage in that. Maybe they have a different view than us. What do we do? I don't know that this really fits within microaggressions or, or not, but it is an uncomfortable topic that I'm, I've always been unsure of what to do about. Mm-hmm. And it's coming up now more than ever before. So the way that you prefaced and set the context is spot on. I think this particular last year, it's really, you know, the rules have went out the window and anything and everything, just even in the context of the training and our desire to level up the awareness and the educational component has somehow, some way 
infused certain colleagues to feel that there is now an open forum to discuss political views. So, and, and we've done everything to steer clear and, and try to empower colleagues to, to really just put that boundary. And that, that's really how I would answer that. If you're in a client relationship and they go there and they open up the door to their views on politics, there isn't an arena for it. And it's not to be looked down upon that you're not contributing in some way, shape or form. Engaging to hear them out and then being able to have a simple line that says, I really don't wanna take the conversation down this political rabbit hole. I'd feel much better if we just kept it here, but thank you for sharing your views. Would be a very appropriate way to make sure they're heard you're not shutting them down. You're just letting them know, I'm not engaging any further. And it's simple and succinct. So sometimes simple is better versus taking it to a place where we have had some colleagues get extremely offended. Mm -hmm. You know, a client that, that refused to respect a boundary, even when they verbalized, let's draw a line. I see where this is going. It's very clear where you stand politically. And I just, you know, I have opposing views. So I think we should really leave it here and let's not engage. And the client continued to push. And it's, it's in those moments, I mean, those are the moments where this becomes that slippery slope. And our, our strong guidance is you just withhold and you just, you choose to disengage at that point, even if that means like we've got to end this conversation and you let your manager know. There, there shouldn't be a position, there shouldn't be a situation where a colleague finds themselves in an uncomfortable position that can be politically leaning in, in a way where it goes against their beliefs. I mean, it, you know, we, we work for an organization and Marsh is very clear on where we stand in terms of our commitments. And outside of that, there's no place for, for blurring those lines, but the expectations that the colleague can at the very least hold that boundary. I like that to set the boundary first and then escalate from there. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, like I said, this has been the year where something gone off the rails and people have felt at liberty and at liberty because of the pre-existing relationship and because they're the client. And those are just some examples of where you can find yourself down a very gray territory where because of the relationship and because sometimes you open up a client call and you lean into that green energy and you're talking all about the weekend and you're talking about things with the kids and that's, that's how your relationship has started. And then it goes political for whatever the reason. And then sometimes it's very difficult to backpedal. And these are the skills though, that we are arming the, um, our colleagues with in these microaggression trainings. I love it. I can't wait for these trainings to come out. I know I've seen some of the unconscious bias trainings and they've been very helpful and thought provoking and actually fostered conversations with different people amongst the team. So yeah. this all sounds very good. <laughs> I'm excited. These will be, these will be some deeper dive, but a lot of scenario based, which I think that that's the key takeaway with all of this. There isn't a silver bullet. It's a little bit of, you have to be in the scenario and be comfortable and confident enough to know that you're spotting aggression and calling it out. Um, and involving your manager appropriately. And again, these are muscles and these are skills where in terms of the continuum, the range of comfort, colleagues and leaders alike have admitted to differing um, comfort levels. And so for some, the work is great. And for others, they, you know, they feel that they're in the mastery sense and, and that, that this is not an issue. And I think it really, it really hits upon, your questions do hit upon 
that very gray uncharted water that organizations have steered clear of for a long time. And, and there, there's no steering clear, otherwise you're left in the dust. If we don't successfully enact change, like if we, I know that there's a strong focus right now around DNI initiatives across our industry. It seems like our industry is behind many others. And you probably know that from your experience in other firms as well. Um, so I'd like to, I'd like to hear your opinion on if we don't enact the right change or if we don't enact it now, how does that, how does that translate into business or attracting the right talent in the future? I feel so strongly that if we are not the change that we want to see and we are not driving with rigor in daily best practices, that we will lose in the game and the war on talent. And so I, I, I believe that it's every day that we're not putting these practices into terms of inclusive leadership and really building out a community and a culture where all, you know, all talent, diverse talent, backgrounds, um, backgrounds and experiences can contribute to our innovation and recognizing and holding a space for that where each colleague can truly feel that they can belong so as to be able to thrive and contribute maximum value. All the while they're highly engaged because they're, they're satisfied and they choose to come to Marsh every day. I, I think that that will set us apart. I think if we, if we you know, take the foot off the gas even a little bit, um, it will be a race and we will, we will fall behind. And so the answer to your question is it's a game changer. Talent is our greatest asset. We know this. We, we place a lot of value on our talent. We, we put a lot of rigor in our onboarding and our training and development. So this is all part of truly being able to walk the talk is living our values and then being very clear that leaders that are falling outside of that scope will probably not last here either because that's just evolution and transformation. And so any organization that I've seen that does this really well, that can really be a trailblazer is very much looking at the future of work. We are leaning into the future of talent. We are leaning in to having these courageous conversations to set the bar higher. I think I could answer this question for you, but I'm gonna ask it anyways. But before we conclude this session, I just, I want you to tell the audience here one call to action, right? So especially for our young professionals, how can they start affecting change in our industry and foster just a better DNI culture? What's the call to action? Of that question. <laughs> I have two, but I promise I'll just make it one. I'll say two then. All right. Well, well, the you know, the first one is to go with confidence. And the reason why I say go with confidence is I can't tell you how many of our C-suite leaders shared vulnerably and authentically that the reason why they don't boldly play big is because they fear they don't have all the answers when it comes to all things diversity and inclusion related. So they, they feel paralyzed in a sense and they end up not doing anything and I have found that very interesting. That's an interesting data point because what that shares with me is here we have in some instances pockets of our culture that they're, they're so attached to being perfectionist and truly being a subject matter expert, getting it all right, 
that it almost paralyzes them to action and, and therefore, you know, we're slower or later to the game to take action and inclusive leadership techniques and put them into place. I would say the call to action for our younger talent coming in is just go with confidence. Feel confident in what you know to be true. And the other call is then remain curious about what you don't. And so it's really recognizing what you know to be true or, and it doesn't feel right and you know it's not right. So you go with confidence and you take action to speak out and to make others aware. This notion of getting curious is this theme of, of educating and leveling up awareness and leveling up. If we all can get to a place where we understand and we're learning and we're very much a learning culture, you do that by remaining curious. You're asking a lot of questions. The best organizations that I've seen are ones that truly enable that. They, they allow for that. They empower colleagues to get curious. And in some cases, go with confidence, take action. And even if you fail, it's okay to fail because you're resilient, but at the very least you held to, to the North Star. So those would be my two. Go with confidence, be curious. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Rochelle. This has been really eye-opening. I appreciate your perspective and all you're doing for Marsh too. I'm excited to see some of these trainings and I really do hope that we can make a difference within the short term and the long term um, to just foster a better work environment and client environment for um, our younger professionals. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, next podcast will be next month. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.